0: Hello and welcome to Cities to Love, a podcast tour of our favourite records from our favourite cities. I'm Hayden Merrick and I'm in Brighton in the United Kingdom.
1: And I'm Taylor Ruckel and I'm in Arlington, Virginia.
0: And in this episode, London is calling. London, where to start? Buckingham Palace, Bulldogs, Bad Teeth. (laughs) This is such a significant music city, of course. Um, to the point where it's just overwhelming. Yeah. In terms of the greatest hits, you've got Abbey Road Studios, you've got Notting Hill Carnival, there's Ronnie Scott's legendary jazz club, the genres as well, ska, two tone, 70s punk. And alongside that 70s punk movement, venues like the Hundred Club, the Roxy, the Kings Road, it's come to be known as Punk Road, ah. um, and Vivian Westwood's legendary shop that was at the epicenter of this huge youth culture fashion shift um, is on that punk road. Though, remember Taylor, punk, I'm not trying to claim that punk was founded by the British. I was was going to say. It was was founded by women. That's the caveat here, (laughs) as Kim Gordon tells us. A few other big names. We've got David Bowie, Kate Bush, Amy Winehouse, The Clash, The Rolling Stones, The Police, and The Spice Girls, if that's your thing it's not my thing but it's a lot of people's thing (laughs) yeah a couple a couple of good tunes um since i was a wee lad i've been making the pilgrimage to london for gigs i've said before on the podcast but brighton has only in the last five or so years i think got on the music map in the way that the other big music cities like manchester and and bristol have been for longer and that could just be my taste evolving as i get (laughs) a bit older either way Lots of London gigs for me growing up, like a couple that spring to mind Dinosaur Jr. at the Kentish Town Forum. That was extremely loud. Green Day <laughs> at the Emirates Stadium, where Arsenal play football. Had Blur at Wembley fairly recently. Weezer at Brixton Academy. Pavement at the Roundhouse. Stereo Lab and American Football not Man. at the same time Man. at the Shepherd's Bush Empire.
1: That would be pretty crazy <laughs> if they played at the same time, like just for their like Hayden Merrick birthday show. You know, Stereo Lab and yeah. American Football together at last.
0: <laughs> I think on that Venn diagram, there's probably a small slither of people who who <laughs> into both. There's there's got to be a few people out there.
1: There's gotta what, be. What's,
0: what's your experience with
1: London? Limited is the word I would use to describe it. I have personally never been to London. My wife, Christine, took a brief study abroad theater course there while we were in college. And so she went to London for two weeks and just saw plays every night, which I was extremely jealous of. It was an amazing trip. When she got back, actually, we went to a local movie theater and got to see a broadcast of the national theater production of Amadeus that she saw while she was in London in person, which was very cool. It was... Um, Lucian Mismati as Salieri and Adam Gillen as Mozart and you know in line with kind of the London staging of this production of Amadeus Adam Gillen was playing Mozart as Johnny Rotten with the you know um, <laughs> accent and the pink Doc Martens and the whole the whole bit it was some there were some cool modernized music cues in the play as well it was a really neat neat production yeah that's that sounds great and uh the first
0: album you've ever bought right also from a London (laughs) band
1: yeah I've told you this before I didn't know this at the time um the first album I ever bought uh inspired of course by Guitar Hero was was a a very London band
0: (laughs) and it wasn't the band (laughs) Foghat Foghut
1: close very close
0: slow ride take (laughs) it easy
1: it was Guitar Hero 3 um but that that song is the first song on the track list and the one that changed my life is the last song on the track list and so the first album oh. I ever bought of course was inhuman rampage by dragon force um also the second album I ever bought was from London because that one was Coldplay. so London big big deal for me as a, as a middle and high schooler
0: <laughs> wow yeah and then you branched out of course to other London acts uh in yeah your, in your later years
1: Don't, don't spoil the episode, you know, we could still, yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, more recently, it's exciting to me because London was the birthplace of MF doom and, um, plenty of other, you know, bands had their main impact elsewhere, but, but started in London. Like, um, I always forget that Fleetwood Mac is a London band because in my brain, they're just such a prototypical LA band, but they're one of those kind of dual citizenship acts we really have our work cut out for us here, Hayden. Mm-hmm. When we are researching a city, sometimes what I'll do is I'll scroll the allmusic.com list of all the artists from a certain place, and sometimes I'll look at places where there's one or two pages of you know names to sort through. I go there for London, and I find 58 pages of about 50 names each. So it is really, truly quite a task we've set out for ourselves. In terms of like current stuff that's going on there, you know, that we hear about all the time in the music press. There's Dry Cleaning, there's Squid, Black Midi, Nilla Frianya, Bar Italia, Heartworms. I, it just goes on and on. Yeah, I would say pretty much
0: all of those bands you just listed as well came out of this scene that is sort of centred on a venue called The Windmill. I don't ah. know if you've heard of this in Brixton. No. It's a very crucial pillar of indie music for championing up and coming bands that then go on to break out it's almost like you know you play at the windmill something's right. gonna happen important people knocking around i guess but um yeah it's kind of amazing how all of those bands have had some sort of schooling there
1: it's tough that this is an audio medium because this whole episode is going to be you saying things like brixton and me nodding sagely like i know what you're talking about <laughs> only nobody <laughs> that doesn't come through on a podcast and so i'm gonna have to you know um People are. People will know. People will know that I do not know much at all about what's going on here. But I'm I excited will, to learn. I will lo-
0: London splain a little bit more <laughs> as we go. Thank you. Yeah, Brixton is uh, an area of South London that is um, very gentrified now. I would say okay. it's maybe comparable to Williamsburg or something. Okay. It had a, a very important part to play in sort of counterculture i guess throughout the years but yeah let's um without further ado then go into a first our first london album and this being sort of my home turf i'm certainly nearer to london than you are yeah i'll I'll
1: start to follow along with our focus tracks check out the cities to love playlist on spotify and youtube you can find links in the episode description And I'll start with something classic. I just very excited about your classic pick because there's so much classic rock, you know, especially London classic rock that has just been absolutely done to death. And uh, this was a really exciting pick for me because it is something that there's very little writing on. And uh, we get to kind of, of we get to dig into something fresh, even though it is classic as well.
0: Yes. And you're, of course, referring to the Sex Pistols.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, then,
0: no, no, no. Very funny, Hayden. The album that we'll be talking about first is called Thank Christ for the Bomb. And it's by a band called The Groundhogs. This was released in 1970. And it's a very hard going bluesy psych rock album that I was psychedelic rock that I was turned on to by uh, Stephen Malcolmus of all people who didn't. <laughs> personally recommend this but it was his top desert island pick in check's notes the march 1997 issue of tower records pulse
1: that's some deep digging i i need to how did you encounter that
0: yeah i i probably have a bit of a Stephen malcolmist fetish but (laughs) it was it was um at least to clear my record it was um while researching an article I came across it and I was like, wow, that's his favorite album. So yeah. And it and it's it's very it's a very exciting record. So a bit of background, the principal songwriter in this band, the Groundhogs, is uh Tony McPhee, who actually died this year, twenty twenty-three, mm. um, prompting some eulogy kind of articles um by outlets such as The Guardian. This Guardian one actually lists the bands that the Groundhogs influenced, including the Damned, Joy Division, Queens mm-hmm. of the Stone Age, The Fall, mm-hmm. Underworld, sub-pop producer Jack Endino, who reportedly would play the album to any band he recorded, including Nirvana. Um, and so, yeah, Stephen Malcolm is obviously not alone here in good company. But they're, I think they're one of those quietly revolutionary bands that didn't quite fit in anywhere and maybe that's part of why they're not as well remembered in a in the broader um conversation like they toured with the rolling stones they had top 10 albums they were successful by all accounts um but you know no one says you know led zeppelin and the groundhogs (laughs) right (laughs) they're a they're a band's band i think and they weren't prog enough or metal enough or blues enough because they could do everything
1: yeah, you know, to this point, I had kind of assumed that The Fall was like the ultimate band's band. And so if you're telling me they were influenced by the Groundhogs, I guess that makes the Groundhogs <laughs> like a band's band's band or something. We're, we're several layers deep <laughs> <Yeah>. on this. <laughs>
0: yeah, bands with a little number three. Yes, band to the power the of cube. three.
1: I had never heard of the Groundhogs at all, even once before you brought them up to me. Um, but I love this record. You know, I forget that there's this bluesier side to a lot of psych rock of this era Jimi hendrix of course being the pinnacle this is a great touchstone also for that if you want to go like another layer deeper
0: totally yeah they recorded this album at d lane lee studio um because they liked the sound of the records that hendrix had made there uh fleetwood mac also recorded there incidentally
1: (laughs) you know it's funny i mentioned about them being a London band. The other thing I forget is that Fleetwood Mac was a blues rock band before the Buckingham Knicks merger. Right. Yeah.
0: So you you need to do more Fleetwood Mac research is what we're learning so far. Yeah, I'm slacking. Groundhogs are great. Slacking on my Mac. <laughs> but for, for sure, like at first I was thinking, who does this remind me of? And it's very Hendrix at points. Um, I've also been listening to the 50th anniversary edition of this album, which has not only, I think, kind of cleaner or tightened-up production, but some great radio sessions and live cuts at the back end, which are well worth checking out.
1: That's neat. I need to do some more digging on that side of things. Yeah, I was also thinking that maybe, like, from when this was released, we could see kind of a Jethro Tull comparison to the La Prague rock side. This record, I think, comes mm-hmm. out a year before Aqualung, and I think there's a little bit there's a little bit of that happening here as well. Um, I, I Before we get too deep into the record itself... I wanted to say I also love the name of this band, uh, The Groundhogs, which apparently comes from the song Groundhogs Blues by John Lee Hooker. If I was going to read mm-hmm. way too much into this band name, I feel like you could make the case there's like a a, a joke about imperialism or geopolitics embedded in that. I might be looking just way <laughs> too hard at it, but that's what, Groundhogs. I don't know. There's something.
0: Yeah, yeah. You could you could certainly be on something there. Um, what I do know uh re john lee hooker is that tony mcphee of the groundhogs used to be john lee hooker's rhythm guitarist um (laughs) the band used to back him and hooker once called them i found two different quotes from different articles one is the best band in england one is the best blues band in england so i'm thinking that that's probably just the same thing right (laughs) probably (laughs) um But that was not what I was expecting going into this record. Like, it's bluesy, but I think just because of my reference points, I saw the the pavementy, the Nirvana-y kind of early stuff in there. You know, like, I can't see Hooker shredding some of these really beefy <laughs> riffs. Um, yeah. I'm sure he can, to be fair, but I don't know. It's heavier. It's more distorted. And But anyway, you don't think the band name refers to the cute furry harbinger of an early spring then it's more it's more the war and the imperialism and stuff
1: <laughs> uh i'm not saying it's not that but i get the impression mostly based on the title of this album that there's something else going on with that you you had done some background looking into into that side of things how did this How how did we come to receive an album called thank christ for the bomb
0: Yes. The title actually came about when their manager, a guy called Roy Fisher, suggested they go with something controversial. Um, quote, John Lennon had just made his famous quote about the Beatles being more popular than Christ and everyone was up in arms. So Roy said, let's marry up with the bomb. How about <laughs> thank Christ for the bomb, which is the album title? Yeah. <laughs> um, just to remind everyone. So quote continuing the quote so i went home and i had to write these lyrics and my initial thoughts were that in the first world war if you were injured you were sent home and that was my first idea a soldier is blown up and his toes are blown off so he goes home again that's not enough so i thought let's make it the atomic bomb really piss people off my thought was and it's been said by other people that once something is invented you can't forget it it's there so there's no point in trying to pretend it doesn't exist
1: that's an end quote <laughs> That's such a, that's, that is a quote. I love that their manager apparently at this point was looking at like, you know, keyword interest for like what the next album should be called. There's truly nothing new under the sun in marketing. (laughs) Yeah. I, I was thinking a lot about this. This got me going off on a lot of different directions. Um, And, you know, other stuff I know from, from London music, I had completely forgotten about this album. Um, but if I was going to try to mirror your choice with another underappreciated London album fueled by Cold War anxiety, I would have chosen the record Deceit by the band This Heat, which I think is taking on a similar theme and from a much more fractured post-punk perspective. It comes up about 10 years later and so the fissile material has undergone some decay in, you know the time since the groundhogs were handling it. That's such a good shout. I,
0: ha- I hadn't heard of this album before but I took a quick listen and Man is intense. Like, it does sound like what's the word used? Fractured and yeah. like shrapnel. And yeah. there's one song with this funereal trumpet fanfare and what sounds like imprisoned soldiers scraping canteens along iron railings or something. And it's called Triumph, of course. Right. So,
1: yes, I hadn't taken any time to consider it, but this record made me think a lot about like, I imagine Cold War art in London is heavily colored by the afterimage of the blitz which is so different from the perspective of US art you know which was made in a nation that was never bombed on that scale and you know made in a nation that dropped two atomic bombs and so right. there's lots of toxic nationalism that goes with that and on the one hand you know and then a lot of you know guilt to be assigned on the other
0: yes i see what you mean there is lots of toxic nationalism here too And the phrase blitz spirit is still something that politicians like to invoke to justify policy decisions, um, especially during the COVID era. It's such an easily digestible phrase that all you have to do, I feel, is say blitz spirit and then boom, like everyone, (laughs) Barry from Stoke, he's on side. And uh, yeah, I kind of feel like US politicians don't ride that World War II wave in the same way that we do over here, like... Doesn't seem to be much of an attempt to rally the whole populace because I don't know. This is probably me just assuming and sound like an idiot, but it seems slightly more deeply divided politically that the common ground is just I don't know. There's anything there, but.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I'm not a political scientist, but I think that's basically true, especially like the right wing in this country is ever more shamelessly pandering to white nationalists and calling their political opponents, the real Nazis. (laughs) And, you know, from where I'm standing, it's like any positivity or any common ground you would want to draw from that era is complicated by a lot of really ugly policies, like the internment of Japanese Americans and things like that. It's, it's highly fraught.
0: Yeah, I I can see that. The, so the album is structured in two quite clearly defined parts you've got side a um which tells the story of a man in london who goes from living in a chelsea mansion to sleeping on benches by the river um side one thus is about alienness side two meanwhile is about eccentricity and so that's when they get freakier
1: yeah this is a record that goes to so many different places as you've alluded to uh genre wise and you know structurally how do you choose a featured track that you want to point people to
0: yeah it's very hard to i think i i often go for album openers and that is the case here hmm. as well uh, uh-huh. i promise i do listen to more than just <laughs> the side one track one but yeah this one um firstly was the first one i heard so it was very impactful and opens with such a compelling guitar riff it's yeah. got this really uh deliberate contrast i think between that heavy minor key guitar riff and which sort of the verses and the bulk of the song exists in and then there isn't so much a chorus but there's like a
1: a little interlude or like a, a head if you will um <laughs> Hey, and we've had way too many genres in this <laughs> segment about this band to bring jazz into it now. Right,
0: yeah. Not let's call it the
1: interlude then.
0: Um but that kind of <laughs> like sinks into a major key and it gets quieter and it's it lets you catch your breath for just a minute and then it surges back in with the most badass bluesery you ever did hear. Um but I feel that these kind of juxtapositions are what elevates them from a blues band where they're not sticking to a twelve bar. I know not all black blues bands, of course, do, but the chord progressions are a lot more involved and I think nod more at what would become grunge and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, true to form, my second favourite track is the one that opens Side B, which is called Ship on the Ocean. But the, I didn't even say the name of the song. I apologise. The, the featured song is called <laughs> Strange Town,
1: of course. And that is how I learned to stop worrying and love Thank Christ for the Bomb.
0: Nice, you've been holding that one back.
1: Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 25, Strange Town by The Groundhogs. Okay, so,
0: Taylor, it's um, it's a few years later. We're still, of course, in London, um There's another genre that people tend to go pretty crazy for. Why don't, why don't you why don't you pick something from uh from that world? And tell me about it.
1: Yeah, I would love to. My classic pick comes from the classic punk era in the heyday of London bands like the Sex Pistols, like the Clash. But my pick is "Germ Free Adolescence" by X-Ray Specs from 1978. This is their debut album. It's the only one they released in their original run. Uh, and to me, anyway, Hayden, I think to this day, X Ray Specs stands out as one of the more interesting bands from this early era of punk. And this is one of the records I'm most likely to revisit over, you know, say The Clash, self titled, Nevermind the Bollocks, Wires, mm-hmm. Pink Flag. All great albums, but, you know, owing to Polystyrene's lead vocals and X Ray Specs, and also to the saxophone on this record which was played by Laura Logic on the first X-Ray Specs single, and then by Rudy Thompson on the rest of Germ-Free Adolescence. Those other records I mentioned are all classics for a reason. But if we're talking about an album I want to sit down, spend a half hour with, it's Germ-Free Adolescence. And that's
0: adolescence as in numerous people who are adolescents rather than the state of being young, right?
1: It's confusing because the album title is Germ-Free Adolescence, as mm-hmm. in the multiple of young people who are germ-free. <laughs> whereas there is a song on the record called Germ-Free Adolescence, as in the time in our lives when we were right, young and germ-free.
0: Yes. You, you need to cover both. It's uh, They're just being diligent.
1: Yes. <laughs> so some background on all of this. Marianne Elliott, the front woman of X-Ray Specs, was born in Kent, brought up in Brixton, London, which I now know mm. a thing or two about. Interesting musical background. She was trained in opera singing, and she spent her mid-teens as a hippie hitchhiking to music festivals. She wasn't a deadhead. Maybe she was. I don't know. She also started releasing reggae pop music as a solo artist. Um, But then, of course, in 1976, on her 19th birthday, she saw a Sex Pistols show, which inspired her to form her own band, which was X-Ray Specs. And at the same time, she took on the stage name Polystyrene. Polystyrene. Mm-hmm. as in the yeah, name poly but also as in yeah, <laughs> i get it thank you get you. it yeah, yes
0: it's good stuff poly poly with one l and styrene with the way styrene is spelt
1: yeah, yeah styrene there's a really great documentary about her life that is called polystyrene i am a cliche which was co-written and narrated by her daughter celeste bell there's interview footage in that documentary where polystyrene says that this stage name was meant to be you know, a play on artificiality and consumerism and pop culture. And the quote is I thought it was a send up of being a pop star, just plastic, disposable. That's what pop stars are meant to be.
0: Mm, that's a more clever take on the stage name trope than <laughs> Sex Pistols did, I guess. Johnny Rotten, Sid Bish. It's a little bit, yeah. A little bit more nuanced. Right.
1: Just like <laughs> Jimmy Bad Boy, you know? Like there's a little <laughs> yeah. bit, there's not quite as much thought in that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating to look at that because, you know, her career obviously overlaps so much with what's going on in the London punk scene and is so directly inspired by it. And at the same time, she comes at it with her own fashion sensibilities, her own aesthetic, very distinct from the movement. She wore a lot of homemade and plastic clothes on stage, a lot of bright colors. You know, you can see this in a lot of her media appearances from that time as well, which there were a lot of. According to her daughter, she never really even considered herself a punk, but you know, that's labels for you.
0: Yeah, I wonder if this is a good time to paint a little bit more, um, context or, of London please. in yeah, 1978. Do. So, I don't know how familiar you are with the uh, the term the winter of discontent, which was um, hmm. the winter of 78 79, which is when many public services went on strike like electricity companies garbage men the national health service The the unions were very powerful at this time there was there were three-day work weeks but like in a bad way where you didn't you know get paid um uh-huh. endless queues for the dole riots glenn matlock of the sex pistols recalls in an interview about the early years of punk that The authorities were actually considering burying dead people at sea because grave diggers (laughs) were on strike. Oh, my God. Um, So all of this kind of shepherded Maggie Thatcher, the conservative, into power, uh, which um, coincided with, like, Reagan, or so, late 70s. um, Yeah. And made sure that labor were extremely unpopular. Crucially to all of this, shepherds disaffected people with bondage pants and something to say (laughs) to get their guitars going right so
1: right yeah so this is all the background this is what's brewing you know when x-ray specs puts out their first single in 77 just a year after they form Mm -hmm. and if you know one x-ray specs song it's this one and it's called oh bondage up yours (laughs) for example We talked about this uh, a little while ago and you mentioned that you didn't think you'd heard of X-Ray Specs, but then I said the name of this song and you realized, yes, you have heard of X-Ray Specs. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yes. I tried (laughs) to see if this had appeared in a film or something, but I am relieved it hasn't as far as I can see, because it means I'm a bit more clued into the canonical punk than I thought. So yeah, I do know X-Ray Specs um, and I really like (laughs) X-Ray Specs. I really like this whole album. Yeah. It's not at all a unique observation, but I see the right girl beginnings and I see how it impacts a band like big Joni today, London based punk band. And then there's also the saxophone, which, yeah, which I mentioned, just a saxophone in there as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's so cool. It's like you have the saxophone combined with the like really scratchy, overdriven guitars. It makes their whole sound feel like, you know, a twist on fifties rock for this new punk generation. Mm
0: slightly invoking the boss i think during during the song plastic bag there's that very melodious halftime section if you know the one i mean whereas like i think it's two sax lines harmonizing and kind of dovetailing with the vocals
1: can i just say i am so glad that we finally brought up bruce springsteen on this podcast (laughs) and i'm even more i'm shocked i am pleasantly surprised it was not me who brought it up? So you're, thank I think, you for that. Hayden. I think
0: you're forgetting the time you really waxed lyrical about the Electrolane cover. But
1: did I? Re- oh, you're right. <laughs> Damn, I have such a short memory with that.
0: That maybe that doesn't count because it's a cover. That was a
1: whole segment. This is not. We have to move on immediately. I cannot. I cannot believe that's going to be in the show. Basically,
0: I, we I need to do blundered. um New Jersey, Asbury Park. Yeah, Asbury Park is Damn. Uh, episode six.
1: We really did talk about that Electro Lane cover a lot. Anyway, X-Ray Specs. We're talking about X-Ray Specs. This band becomes known for their live show playing around London. They share a bill at the Roxy with Wire and the Buzzcocks. And it's interesting to look at. They also influenced the New York City punk scene because in the spring of 1978, before Germ-Free Adolescence came out, they played a residency at CBGB's with Debbie Harry in the front row. Oof. Wow. Another notable attendee, Thurston Moore, later of Sonic Youth fame. Who? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there's, there's a great quote from him in the uh, documentary where he says, What was so exciting about it was when they did Oh Bondage, up yours. Polly would hand me the microphone to sing up yours. It was somewhat as if I was being knighted. And he says other places that apparently that was the first time he ever sang into a microphone.
0: I'm sorry, that man is Privileged. That's that's wild. The first time <laughs> he was there for everything. Jeez, was that an X-ray yeah.
1: Specs show at CBGBs? Imagine it. So yeah. obviously, you know the impact they have, the influence they have. They blew up extremely quickly in the UK. They had not even been together for two years, and they're playing Top of the Pops. They have these huge gigs. They perform for eighty thousand people at Rock Against Racism in Victoria Park in London. Wait, oh wait, they were on Top of the Pops. <laughs>
0: that's really surprising have you seen have you ever seen an episode of top of the pops do you know i've only
1: ever seen i've seen clips of it in so many documentaries but no i've never seen actually like in in context footage
0: Mm. because it's like yeah all the bands mimed on it like that was common knowledge that it was a condition like that you (laughs) you were on the show but you mime which is just so surprising so x-ray so sex that seems very odd that they were on that you mean but, because their
1: whole deal is about artificiality yeah
0: yeah i don't know i mean it's a
1: i don't know it's
0: broadening the appeal so i don't i'm not um suggesting that it's hypocritical but it just seems so no, no. like such a juxtaposition with the like lights and the the audience and yeah the reruns at christmas time of top of the pops before the wallace and gromit marathon yeah
1: <laughs> it's funny you know like it's all part of this this weird relationship they end up having with success and with fame which comes to them very quickly and I don't want to dwell too much on the details but it's a very difficult thing for polystyrene and around the time the record comes out which is around November of 1978 I believe she ends up having a mental breakdown she starts having hallucinations she was hospitalized and she was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia it wasn't until you know i think many years later she was re-diagnosed with bipolar disorder but x-ray specs breaks up in 1978 after she leaves the band there's a reunion record in the 90s there's are scattered one-off appearances but that that's you know where things sort of end for them mm.
0: being famous and broke is the worst of both worlds she said later in life which is a very sad yeah. quote
1: but she has a, a solo career as well and puts out records, including in the year she died in 2011. So, you know, it's this thing where they sort of told her when she was first misdiagnosed, she would never work again. And she goes on to sort of in spite of that, you know, uh-huh. have this this kind of solo career and and again, get to be around to see people be influenced by her work and and, you know, take it to new places. Germ-free adolescence still endures as this huge monumental achievement in a first wave punk. I also want to take a brief aside, you know, we talk about records with a sense of place. We talk about records and artists being from somewhere. I think it's also important to talk about the fact that the question of who is allowed to be from somewhere is very fraught. Polystyrene comes from a multiracial family, a white Scottish-Irish mother, and a black Somali father, and she talks and writes, you know, throughout her life about this feeling of displacement that she grew up with. Her daughter Celeste puts it this way in the documentary. The quote is, my mum came to resent always having to answer the question, where are you from? She was a Londoner born and bred, but she was also brown, so her Britishness was always questioned. In the end, she started to question it herself. She had this yearning for Africa. She used to dream about running away from dreary, soggy England, where she never felt at home. I think punk records often have a very complicated relationship with you know the city that, that gave rise to them on all kinds of axes. And you know, for Polystyrene, I think especially, there was a lot of, of complicated feeling going on there.
0: Yeah, that... That that's a very astute observation. What um, a lot of great songs on this record. Of course, you're not going for the adolescence, as in the state of being young. You're going for a a different track. Tell, tell me, tell me what the pick is.
1: I want to talk about the day the world turned dayglow. It's a really great example of polystyrene's lyricism, which I think has like just enough surreality and like conceptual sophistication to put it above your everyday meat and potatoes punk song. It's a really neat summation of the records anti-consumerist thesis where throughout they're kind of decrying the sterility of this culture. That's, you know, turned plastic in a very real and physical way. And there's the vocals, of course, you know, because polystyrene had Mm -hmm. just one of the best, most influential voices in all of punk music ever. We've talked in the past on this show about trained opera singers who become punk singers, I'm thinking back to Barty's strange. There's something about that combination of power and also Mm -hmm. finesse and the things that allows you to do. There's a great quote I wanted to end on from Nitsa Abebe writing for Vulture after polystyrene passed away in 2011. The name polystyrene comes from the plastic that sporks and styrofoam are made from. She chose it because it referred to something lightweight and disposable. Here's the thing about polystyrene though. It's one of the least biodegradable things you handle every day. It stays around forever. The name is apt that way. We will most likely continue for a long time to hear women pass along bits of the way Polly Styrene sang. There's such freedom and pleasure that it's no surprise singers keep coming back to it. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 26, The Day the World Turned Day Glow, by X-Ray Spex. Hayden, hey, a lot of what gets talked about now from London is this you know, wave of post-punk that's been getting very popular. Why don't you tell me about something current that's more from that side of things?
0: Mm. Yeah, so there are are so many options that you could go with for a current pick. This band, I feel, are not as well known as some of those Black Middies and Black Country New Roads, but um, they're called Bus Yarn, and the album is called Baby You Know, and it's from 2022. This is a band that makes very playful, swaggery, art pop with witty lyrics. I guess they're somewhat related to this school of arty, talky, post-punk bands that you mentioned. But I think they're more melodic with the vocals than a band like Dry Cleaning. Um, yeah. Like There are some serious hooks here, particularly, for yes. example, the chorus of my featured track, which is called You Have Bewitched Me from this album baby you know there are like two vocal lines going on here like it's a harmony sure but they're like independent melodies that move parallel one is kind of hung beneath the other and it's just it's so catchy uh, the line down at the bottom of my heart is a gate to a garden you have the key um yes also at the time of recording this it's autumn and this song references that we've got autumn leaves walk in the park Blah, blah, blah. But I had to pick this one. I love it.
1: Yeah, it's it's very appropriate for the time. I listened to this album on a walk in the park just to confirm, you know, (laughs) and I agree. We like to fact check rigorously on this podcast. Mm -hmm. You're right that this is much more melodic than dry cleaning. Uh, It's more emotional, too, although it is often quite a dry record. I love that you have this super, like, grandiose, very sentimental declaration on this song. You have bewitched me. I am enchanted. And yet it's delivered so dryly. And, you know, at the same time, you have these strings in the background, which have this very, like, excited, but also kind of light, tentative feel to them. It's like you can feel the butterflies from being enchanted, bewitched. It's there. You hear it. You feel it.
0: That's nice. I like that. A bit more about the Boss Yarn story. I'm flipping the structure here, by the way, and starting with the featured track and then working backwards. I hope that's okay.
1: You're an innovator. You're a pioneer of the form.
0: (laughs) So Bastion are on London's Fire Records, um, an awesome label, by the way, that's home to so many cool bands and artists like Virginia Wing. And um, I mean, they put out the first Neutral Milk Hotel album, but um, the central figure slash songwriter here is called Serafina steer she started playing harp and is classically trained but then moved to bass she's had also a bunch of solo albums before forming bass yarn so she's also flipping the order of things she started solo and then did a band Aha. so yeah yeah resonance appropriate yes <laughs> makes sense and then she's she also plays with jarvis cocker's jarv is project if you've oh okay um, from guy of course from pulp
1: from pulp there it is that's it here we go we went so long in this episode without <laughs> it but we've had our first invocation of Britpop. pop
0: wow yeah we actually haven't yeah we're halfway through about mentioning um
1: we'll fix it we'll get to yeah. it yeah
0: so bastian are named after the dutch conceptual artist bastian ada who I don't know if you've seen this, but he vanished at sea. It's a quite a, str- okay. <laughs> it's quite a strange wow. story. He was trying to cross the Atlantic from the American coast to the English coast on a 13-foot sailboat, if that's relevant. Um,
1: like There goes my summer plans, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Come to visit me, yeah. Um, his deserted boat washed up off the coast of Ireland in 1976 without him being on board. So... Yeah, I feel that's exactly the kind of weird, esoteric, historical event that you would expect this band to be inspired by. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's a quote from an interview with Seraphina Steer in The Quietus where she says, I kind of liked the idea that
1: it might be this
0: found recording from an island or something.
1: You know... I do feel obligated to point out that in a way it is a found recording from an island insofar as <laughs> Great Britain is an island. Right. Yes. I see.
0: <laughs> see what you did there. To
1: me, to me, this is a found recording from an island. Me, to me, to mm-hmm. me, the American mm-hmm. listener.
0: <clears throat> yeah. To me, it's a, it's a found recording from the, the homeland, from the, from the <laughs> mainland. Um, yes. But you know, that said, they're not like obsessed with, in the past they sing about topical middle class woes there's a song called my incantations herbs and art have abandoned me um so obviously uh-huh. the tongue super far pressed in the cheek there yes. but
1: yes um <laughs>
0: there's sometimes also incredibly matter of fact like on the track progressive causes which is the opener so i didn't pick an opener this time there we go i've broken the Ah. ha Um, the whole song is the following quote here. I think it's absolutely vital that a person discovers what they really want, both in their lifetime, as well as moment to moment. I think it's vital when a person ignores their urges or needs, they are crippling their spirit, deadening their life. That's the, the entire lyrics of the song. And then of course, progressive causes, (laughs) is that what you're going (laughs) to,
1: that's not. I was gonna say that's not the entire lyrics of the song because there are also Backstreet oh, Boys shit. lyrics quoted yes, in this song, of in this borderline spreke song style. And I love that that as a as a illustration of the other lyrics. You take you know the epitome of indulgent pop music, and you just dampen the spirit just a little <laughs> yes. bit by by putting it in this frame. I also thought it was it was you know another weird place my brain went listening to this. It it kind of obliquely reminds me of Chalk Circle from our pilot episode. Mm. And that might just be because the phrase "progressive causes" has the same meter, the same syllables, and everything as "subversive pleasure," which was the Chalk Circle yes, song. Yes, so, I see that weird link that only only we could make here. So
0: specific, like no one else will. <laughs> yeah, subversive
1: pleasure. Yeah, that is a that feels
0: like a track that a track title that you could find on this album actually. Like yes, there's there's a song called sex cult um it's yes it's very um sort of i don't know what the word is but anyway
1: well what do we do now Hayden because we've already talked about yeah. our our future track <laughs>
0: yeah. here I think what you just have to do is listen to you have bewitched me by Bastian, and then try and wake up tomorrow without it stuck in your head because it is a feat <laughs> if you can I'd say it follows you into the shower into the car everywhere you go best chorus ever you heard it here.
1: Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 27, You Have Bewitched Me, by Bass Jan.
0: Taylor, if I'm not mistaken, this may be the first EP we've actually featured on the podcast. Is that right?
1: It may be. My current pick is not a full-length album technically, but it is kind of a compilation of two EPs, but they were released as an LP with one EP on each side. Mm. So with that unnecessarily complicated justification aside, <laughs> let's talk about Pterodactyl slash Plesiosaur, the 2022 release by Rex from London. Yay. And in, in line with the band name, all of their releases are, of course, named after dinosaurs, other extinct megafauna. It's all very whimsical. It's just one of the many things I love about this band is that sort of commitment to the to the theming mm. in terms of quick comparisons for this band. They remind me a lot of Los Campesinos and that their songs are very wordy and manic and existential. Uh, they also remind me a little bit of Tiger's Jaw in terms of just the raw emotion on display here and also the you know big keyboards. Uh, I did find an interview with a blog called When the Horn Blows uh, that confirms that Los Campesinos was a direct influence on this band. Is there anything more satisfying, Hayden, as a music <laughs> oh, writer, than having one of these theories absolutely. and then reading an interview where somebody says, yes, I was not i was influenced by that? 100%. Anyway, so
0: validating.
1: Backing up. Me Rex was originally the solo project of Miles McCabe, who is also in a London pop-punk band called Fresh. The first Me Rex EP came out in 2016, and then later he expands to a full band with Rich Mandel and Phoebe Cross from the band Happy Accidents, also, for a time, Catherine Woods from Fresh, although she's no longer in Mirex. Also, Phoebe Cross and Catherine Woods are in another band together called Cheerbleeders. <laughs> so I've just been looking into the lineup of Mirex for the first time, and I feel like it's already given me so many threads to follow all over London, yeah. which is always so cool. I was going to see Mirex in D.C. last year. Um, But their tour was cancelled. So that said, I hear they have a great live show from reliable sources. Yeah,
0: I I have actually seen this band. Um, Thankfully, it was not cancelled. Well, having said that, I didn't know I was going to see this band. They played at the Hope and Ruin here in Brighton, and it was during the Great Escape Festival. Um, I hadn't heard of them before, so this was a real nice, organic way of discovering a band, and yeah I, I went to see illuminati hotties and i was early and there was that rom-com kind of moment you know where you like turn to the guy <laughs> next to you mouth mouth yeah. agape and you're like who is this like a light bulb <laughs> over your head you know they were so loud they were so tight really captivating performance that somehow made illuminati hotties seem less energetic and i know you're familiar that's an with accomplishment, that accomplishment man yeah, like that's it's hard to out energy sarah tuts in
1: their first full band releases were a pair of eps called of course triceratops and stegosaurus in 2020
0: start with the uh the the big hitters in the dinosaur world the
1: the classic dinosaurs yeah and uh in 2021 they put out what i think is probably one of the most interesting experimental albums i've ever heard of it's called mega bear Mm. and it consists of 52 tracks that are 30 seconds each that were all recorded in roughly the same key Same time, same tempo, and the deal is you're supposed to play it on shuffle, so there are as many unique orderings of tracks as there are ways to shuffle a deck of cards, which, if you're curious, (laughs) is 8.06 times 10 to the 67th power, that's the number we're dealing with, of unique permutations of songs on Mega Bear, song fragments, clips. That is so wild. I think Mega Bear, the album title, is a clever way of saying Ursa Major, as in the Constellation, um, it's really interesting to me to think about that, you know, the way that as a listener, you're sort of looking for patterns in this random arrangement of tracks in the same way people have found patterns in the random arrangements of the stars throughout history. There's something really cosmic mythological deep going on with Mirex's body of work mm. and even just these these big sort of structural gestures also bears mentioning that, like as an experiment, I think it really works. All these individual bits are so catchy and it, it, it's a really enjoyable listen any way you divide it up. It's exciting every time two parts line up, especially neatly.
0: Yeah, I agree. It really does work. Have you listened to it in the order it's intended, or have you only shuffled it?
1: The, that's the thing about it, is there's no intended order. They, they made all these fragments, and then they shuffled them before oh. they, you know... So there are different orderings for things like the way it's presented on streaming and the way that they did it on a vinyl release because there is a vinyl release of this record. But all of those were made from shufflings of the playlist they themselves did. Mm -hmm. Okay. I
0: want to shout out your flood review of Pterodactyl, if I may. Um, And if I may go further than to shout out and actually quote it, I think this is a really nice... Um, summary me rex can take big conceptual swings in the first place because of their great talent for writing hooks of prehistoric proportions <laughs> and snappy rhymes that even in an intentional order capture a feeling of cosmic dislocation somewhere between childlike whimsy post-adolescent angst and grown-upness that is such good writing it pisses me off
1: <laughs> thank you for that. And you know, I, it's and thank you for the segue into talking about these EPs because these come after Mega Bear and sort sort of you have this huge like destabilizing of how their songwriting even works. And then everything comes back together in these like just perfect pop songs. Pterodactyl and Plesiosaur are the, you know, releases that got me into them. And uh, I have to say they recently put out a new album, which is a much more conventional full length album called Giant Elk. It's good people listening you should go listen to that but I am still processing that record Mm -hmm. so I wanted to talk about these EP songs which are the ones I've spent the most time with you know like I said I think these are these are the best and the poppiest songs they had released to that point Miles McCabe just writes incredible lyrics like his verses are so dense it's like the dictionary is on fire and he has to use every word before it burns up I'm I'm tempted to say that he sings even faster than I talk, if that is something you can even imagine, <laughs> yeah, if you can reckon, conceive of that. Yeah, it's possible. I think the song Skin It Itches from Pterodactyl was the first one of these that really grabbed me really hard. And, you know, what I think they start to nail on these EPs is combining those super dense verses, which have always kind of been Miles McCabe's lyrical style, with you know these huge belted choruses that just explode on impact which i think is the benefit of this record where you're trying to take 30 second chunks that all sound good on their own you know all of a sudden you you stick one of those in the middle of a song and you've got the magic this is a band that you know goes for the head goes for the heart i think in pretty equal measure so catchy
0: (laughs) it's so catchy it's so good so, it's "Skin It Itches." I also really like that track. Is that what we're going for for the for the featured
1: one? I didn't pick it. We're it's it's a, one of those weird things you do in your head where I think like, "Oh, that'd be too obvious for me to pick," and only not because anybody else knows that song, but just because like that's the one that's been done to death in my own head, and I, I wanted to yeah. focus on a song called "Toilet of Venus," which is from the EP Plesiosaur, uh, and I just I just can't get over one of the verses of this song, which goes. You call that a knife. That is the memory of a knife. It is a story you believe about something a knife could be. But if it's real to you, then it's real to me. An invitation down in dirty water waiting to injury. The rhythm of that and the way he's packing in all these ideas about the nature of language and what it means to call something by its name versus what somebody else hears when they hear that name. There is so much wrapped up in this this verse. and And it sounds so pleasing to the ear rhythmically and it is catchy and then it leads into a chorus that i have to restrain myself from screaming every time i hear it this is <laughs> because hey, the chorus <laughs>
0: go on sorry this is yeah this is giving me like tim kinsella now
1: yeah yeah Big time i mean up absolutely absolutely of that caliber and and you know <laughs> then you get this chorus that comes out even if I'm crazy half the time, I'll remember these as the best days of my life. And he has a little bit of that Conor Oberst thing mm-hmm. where he sounds like so on the edge of of the emotional limit with these lyrics. It's just overwhelming to me hearing this. This band for me captures this like really uh, profound feeling of like struggling to grasp your place in the cosmos and the horror and the beauty of everything. This band makes me feel like the two-headed calf from the Laura Gilpin poem. <laughs> I listen to this this banned, and I'm small and insignificant in the face of my certain death, but right now I'm alive, and there are twice as many stars in Ursa Major as usual. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 28, Toilet of Venus, by Rex. So we've reached the part of the show, Hayden, where we're going to talk about some records that we think are cool. I'm thinking about London. I'm thinking about what's cool for me. This can only be one thing, and so I have to ask Hayden: Do I hear Jerusalem bells ringing? <laughs> do I hear Roman cavalry choirs singing? Of course, there's only one cool band, and that's Coldplay. Of course, Coldplay
0: and their album uh, "Viva La Vida." Is that what it's called? That's the one. Mm-hmm. We're not. This is no. no we're not doing no, that. Let's let's not. Although, you know, I I remember actually, if I may tell a quick anecdote, yeah. playing a show when I was like 19 and my band was playing, it was quite, a, it was a good show. I was feeling confident, Yeah. had a packed room, someone, I mean, the room was tiny, but you know, yeah. someone called out, play Coldplay song. <laughs> and I, we used to like record all our sets uh-huh. at, the de- at the desk so we could hear it back. And I go... Coldplay fucking suck <laughs> And I would say it like that In oh, the microphone <laughs> And every well, Thankfully People I think Who were there Know that I'm strange and I wasn't being Totally sincere But right. um, So there was some Some scattered l- laughs But My point being I used to Feel that way And I really don't now Coldplay are great They're, they're great. not my cool pick But they're pretty great I especially like their Christmas song
1: Yeah Christmas lights That's a great song Yeah It's a yes. great song
0: There's also a a, a cover of Yellow Card, the pop punk band doing it, which is pretty, pretty cool as well. But my cool pick is a solo artist called Elsa Tully. uh, And the record that I'm highlighting is her EP Holy Isle. So two EPs in this episode. The
1: seal's been broken. Might as well throw another EP on the pile. Yes,
0: Exactly. I guess this is technically the third EP this episode because you right. had a loophole. I was on two your, for one. On your yeah. one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she hasn't had a a full length album yet and she's had a a long smattering of singles, but this is the kind of the first place I'd go to. I've banged on to you about Elsa Tully before. Yeah. It's one of those records I've listened to so many times that I don't know how to really talk about it critically or at all intellectually but the elevator pitch the kind of long ride in the elevator pitch is that Elsa Tully is from Wales but she resides in London now like Serafina Steer she's a trained a classically trained musician she trained on the cello and then switched from classical composition to pop composition while at university so she did the literal school of rock joke like (laughs) cello you know the cello you've got a bass yes um in other words she started writing on bass but used it in a cello tuned as a cello so instead of e a d g Uh she tuned it to c g d a so her bass is tuned to perfect fifths rather than fourths if that means anything to you that's maybe too niche
1: I was going to be really flippant about that and be like no of course that doesn't mean anything to me but actually I was thinking about this and I played the viola in middle and high school orchestra which is actually the same tuning as a cello so I do kind of get it
0: yeah right yeah and it it gives a more open sound I guess it's like Basically, when I'm trying to work out what she's playing on my guitar, I'm like, I can't do that. You can't do it. it. Yeah. It's just it <laughs> kind of needs to be in that tuning. Anyway, um, with her bass providing the backbone to the song, she creates these kind of ambient and folk inspired arrangements around it. Uh, she incorporates a lot of field recordings. There's a tumble dryer on the song sheets, which she really seamlessly works in to the chorus and it almost like you know how your tumble dryer builds up and it kind of hits a note like an actual note like she does that so it's kind of an in-tune tumble dryer oh wow um there's the obligatory bird song there's a garden rake that she scrapes along the floor to make this kind of percussive sound there's the ding of a text notification that's kind of linked in with the narrative of the lyrics but yeah it's also expertly embedded into the overall texture it's not kind of like a gimmick thing of like i used a fucking garden rake like (laughs) she doesn't shout about it sort of thing
1: what you're telling me is that you can't is that you can tune a piano but you can't tune a fish but you can tune a tumble dryer is what i'm (laughs) here is what i'm learning that's correct exactly (laughs) this is one of my favorite things in an indie record especially just like speaking as someone who's like set up a mic stand next to a coffee pot before to try and get some of that uh Mm. ambient sound yes you wrote about Elsa Tully for Bandcamp Daily in an excellent feature, and I love the connection that you drew in that piece between recording and remembering a time and place. Writers, I think, very often will call lyrics diaristic. I don't know if we talk about recording in the same way as often, and sometimes it really is like that, you know, just like making notes about where you were and things you heard and, and you know, all of that mm. kind of memory, memory business. Absolutely.
0: Thank you for the shout out. Yeah. That was a really cool piece to write. That's one of my favorite things I've done. Um, You had
1: this bit also in that piece where you talked a lot about geography. And so, you know, one of the songs that's not on this EP is called Edge. And uh, it's about the King's Cross Canal Walk, you know, to sort of set the scene a little bit some of the surroundings. What can you tell me about that since I've never been there?
0: Mm, Yeah, of course. It's a very charming towpath that winds for several miles through central London its full or official name is the Regent's Canal at King's Cross. Um, and it's, you know, it is lined with multicoloured houseboats and old listed townhouse buildings, lots of green space. There's the gurgle of the water, people riding their bikes. It's kind of, uh, I feel I like could sound like a, a tourist at uh, <laughs> a toural board guide or whatever thing but it's kind of like a little escape from the city yeah uh, and the route it links up all these other areas like little venice camden and it ends at paddington so you can do a like a pub crawl along the route and get very sunburned <laughs> as i have <laughs> in the past um but yeah that's a good point actually to kind of prompt on the place because yeah as i mentioned she's from wales she grew up in wales but is now based in london so there's a kind of interesting contrast there between the rural and the the busyness and on that song edge which mentioned is not on this ep there are film recordings of like chatter in a bar and stuff that sets the scene but then on the other side you've got like a beehive on one song that was recorded in wells so yeah there's a lot to talk about in terms of place with this ep uh it takes us outside of london because it's named after a scottish island um Holy Isle is the name of the EP right and that's in the Firth of Clyde within the Isle of Arran. in this area you've also got a volcanic island called the Elsa Craig hmm. uh, which is what gave Elsa Tully her name as in her parents gave her that name it's not huh. a stage name so she is for sure rooted in place and talks a lot about it in that band camp piece I just feel taken away from wherever I am when I listen to her music It carries you off and supplants you in, you know, wherever she is trying to evoke in the music. It's not always explicit, but it's the subtlety of, like, birds singing and flapping their wings, which you can hear on the EP's Closer, the song Your Mess. Like, if you're ever on a packed train or something or stuck inside working and you need to escape, it's really great for that. Moreover, I feel that her playing emulates the countryside like it's not just these field recordings it's the actual playing she grew up in wales so even though she's based in london these outside rural spaces were very formative um and she told me that she used to do this 20 something mile walk which went from her parents house in wales to a ruined abbey in the black mountains and she would bring her recorder and record sounds along the way later incorporating them into the music But yeah, the instruments, too, the way they undulate and correspond with each other. Something about it is very natural and not human made sounding somehow. Another draw for me, of course, is her voice. It's the kind of voice to comfort you in the darkness. It's very warm and expressive.
1: Totally. Yeah, she gave a great quote on, you know, all, all of this that you're talking about in that interview you did just the unhurriedness of the creative process. She says that she is really generally a very stressed person. And so to make music like this, that is so transportative, like you're talking about, she has to put herself in this other place.
0: Mm. And the
1: quote, the quote she gives is I have to kind of drop into a feeling of clarity. It always seems to be the place I gravitate toward that kind of calm reflection. I guess it's hoping to be wise, hoping to have some kind of wisdom about a situation or aiming for that. I think Mm. your, your line on that is also great where you say, her music is at once documentation of that quest and proof of its successful denouement, a place of respite, free from bustle and expectation, which that's where I want to be. That's, I, that's a place I want to go. I would also
0: love to join you there. Let's go. <laughs> Let's link arms and like, yes, trundle down the, the yellow brick road. But uh, yeah, thank you for the, for the quote in terms of similar artists. Um, for most of her songs, she has a Spotify playlist that she's curated that contains artists and songs that influenced that particular song. So these include everything from Caroline Polachek huh. to Bill to Billie Holiday uh-huh. to Aldous Harding, um, Laura Marling as well is in there. I think it's pretty singular, though. Like yeah, what I-, she's doing I don't think isn't... it sounds
1: like anything like any of those for sure.
0: No. Certainly not Billy Holiday, but in a way I'd love to pick Edge as a featured song because its sense of place is so grounded on the canal walk, but I'll give it a shout out instead because it's not on this EP and that would definitely be bending the rules way too far. <laughs> every song on Holy Isle, and there are four tracks, every song is great. I think the title track is a good bet for a featured track, though. She does these YouTube blogs where she talks a bit about the creation of each song and there's this really amazing bridge section with counterpointing violins and cellos diving up and down, swirling around one another. She shows the logic file on her computer and it's just so many layer tracks and she like isolates them and you can hear what they're doing. And it's just kind of like, whoa, uh, crazy to me that you can effortlessly get from this super delicate, spacious intro to this. So such an intense orchestral wall
1: Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 29, Holy Isle, by Elsa Tully. Uh, Taylor,
0: what's your pick for something cool to bring us home?
1: Well, there's some resonance here with my classic pick. We're going to pick another debut record that's also a band's defining statement from another decade, another whole movement. That debut record, my cool pick, is the self-titled Elastica record from 1995.
0: Yay, the crowd goes wild.
1: We're going to talk about Britpop, at least briefly. Which is to say, I'm going to American-splain Britpop now. So, here we go. Get ready.
0: I'm so ready.
1: It's a more loosely defined movement than punk was, I think it's fair to say. We're talking about Britain. It's the 90s. Bands are leaning into their Britishness, setting themselves apart from what's going on with grunge in the US very consciously. There is not really a set of genre Mm. descriptors associated with Britpop, although I think the big names have shared roots in certain strains of guitar pop and glam rock. Talking about Oasis, talking about Blur, Pulp, and Suede, these are the bands that get lumped together as the big four of Britpop. But I don't want to talk about those bands. Yes, that's the Mount Rushmore, exactly. Um, But I want to talk about Elastica. Founded in London in 1992 by Justine Frischman and Justin Welch, they break off from an early lineup of suede. And um, compared to the big four, at least, they get a lot more into post-punk, a lot more into new wave kind of sounds. And uh, again, their self-titled debut comes out in 95. In my opinion, this is my hot take. I think it's one of the better-aged records of the Britpop era compared to elasticus pierce their sound is a lot leaner and a lot meaner it's not as glam rock influenced i think the more kind of if i can say self-indulgent kind of classic rock nostalgia from that period it feels very backward looking sorry oasis uh <laughs> but sort of the attitude sort of the the charisma the the what's the word i want to use here The swagger is timeless, and Elastica, Mm -hmm. I think, had more of that than any of their peers, at least that I'm aware of. None of those other bands sound this cool. I think actually, you know, come to think of it, there's something consciously uncool about Britpop. This is my last American-splaining moment. It's at least very uncool <laughs> yeah. by American standards of the 90s, you know, because like all that grunge stuff is so much about not wanting to be famous, not wanting to be successful. And those Brit pop bands wanted it so bad and they did not care whether you knew it. What's the first song on the first Oasis album? I want to be a rock and roll star, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. Good shout.
1: Sort of to sum all this up, Tom Bryan, writing for Stereo Gum, had a take on this for the 20th anniversary of this record. And what he says is. Elastica, the record, amazingly enough, has not aged at all since it came out 20 years ago, possibly because it already seemed perfectly out of time the moment it arrived. There was a bit of dance pop in the synths on the album, especially on the big single Connection, but they were mostly utterly uninterested in sounding like they belonged in 1995. Instead, they were a streamlined, weaponized version of a British band from that circa 1979 era, where post-punk was turning into new wave. The sounds all come, sometimes directly, from that era, but they're not weighed down with political struggle or cultural angst. Ooh, that's a great quote. How'd I do? How's my assessment?
0: Perfect, yeah. Flawless. And with the help of another non-British person, you guys are uh, got it covered. we doing alright. Me, me and here. Tom. Yeah, I will say a lot of Rip pop gets conflated, kind of playing off what you were just saying, with the early days of Tony Blair when there was a lot of hope and prosperity in the air. It was after the protracted Thatcher and John Major conservative ah. governments that I've sort of alluded to um at the tail end yeah. of well, seventies. Um Park Life, Live Forever, you know, for example, a peppy and they're poppy and they're look at us england rules yay um that was the (laughs) subtext at least you know football yob culture but i'm not getting that from this alaska record i don't even see it as Britpop, really i feel like in places it's quite a raw punk album although i did see that she freshman has been overly critical of stuff like riot girl in the past so that doesn't surprise Um, me actually
1: but yeah, so. even, even where Britpop stuff is not like, rah, rah, yay, England, like the blur stuff gets sarcastic. Modern life is rubbish after all. It's still mm-hmm. like very much in conversation with this, you know, bigger conversation about British identity, you know, which could arguably be more appropriate to talk about on this podcast than Elastica, come to think of it. so. Uh, help me out. What's a nice British lyric from this Elastica record? What's how can we ground ourselves here? Yeah.
0: yeah, One one of the most British lyrics ever is from the song "Waking Up," and the lyric is simply "Make a cup of tea, put a record on." There's something quite comforting about that. Let's say, as long as you don't put the milk in first. No, and actually, I'll also have oat milk, please. Um, oh yeah, I also yeah, think st- <laughs> Stutter the the last song is a really cool lolloping punk song that i really like and when i first heard it because the production is kind of different to the rest of the album i thought it was a a demo or a bonus track on the end like listening in context huh. but um yeah it's the, their first single i didn't realize until researching this and they tacked it on the end of the album it's kind of interesting, but.
1: Something else from the Tom Bryan piece is that this feels like a greatest hits record, even though it's their debut record. And I think that sort of attitude to just like Uh. just cram the single on there. It's fine. You know, is like very much a part of that. But yeah, you had some other notes about how this, you know, as is commonly observed, very like interconnected with the, you know, the, the Britpop scene and the other major figures of the time. Yes.
0: So Blur's later era songs, I think many of them are about Justine Frischman and the relationship she and Auburn had. Tender gets talked about a lot in this context as being about their breakup. If you dig a couple of pages into Google, there's some really gross clickbaity <laughs> sensationalist articles from the time like Frischman blast former beau Damon Auburn for lyrical content of 13. and it's probably not worth dwelling on this it's yeah definitely not actually because Frischman once said quote it's imperative that you should be written about for your music rather than are we going to be a-listed are we going to get that cover yeah i guess it's yeah just to show the kind of interconnectedness of the brit pop school um as you mentioned she was also an original member of suede it's all very interconnected, isn't it
1: Yeah, there's so much crossover here. And that's why I feel like I have to bring up Britpop, even though this record sounds nothing like those other bands, because like that's that's what dominates, you know, the the historical Mm. context. When you look at anything people have written about this band, it's always written in the context of what else was happening in Britain at the time. Also, Damon Albarn plays keys on this record, and he's credited as Dan Abnormal so that he wouldn't be directly, you know, talked about in the way that. You know, he, of course, is. and, and He he
0: was, yeah. Yeah, <laughs>
1: it's like valiant effort.
0: Yeah, the the subtext is almost like, wow, look, look what you did with help from your famous boyfriend. I feel like there was a lot of condescending, that kind yeah. of condescending tone in the press. Yeah, totally. Um, but anyway, like, to kind of change the subject a bit, I feel like this record makes me feel really cool, if you know yeah. what I mean. It makes me feel like Robin from the Hulu remake of High Fidelity. <laughs> but... Obviously I'm the British version, so it's just the original book. So it's I've just, just brought myself to sort of circle there. But yeah. like <laughs> yeah. Like I could smoke cigarettes and I could hurry through the city wearing a leather jacket to the record store where I work. And mm-hmm. I could go on terrible dates and drink straight whiskey in my apartment while this album blares out of my hi fi. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like one way you just put it on and it makes you feel invincible. It's a it's a perfect ten.
1: Yeah, I'm absolutely on the same page here. Like it just it's just it's contagious. It's infectious, the swagger of this record. It's like I'm wearing dark sunglasses and I don't care what you think about anything, you know, like is how I feel when I listen to this record. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I only heard it for the first time about a year ago, incredibly, even though, you know, I've been hearing about those other bands for ages. I cannot believe I missed out on it. It's a, almost a perfect 10 for me, although I will say that this that Indian song is the one legitimate skip on this record. You know, just to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> Not not everything on this record has aged well, uh, as as most of it has. So it's a greatest hits.
0: It's not, but it's thought of as a greatest hits. What's the greatest hit on the greatest hits? For, me, not it's, greatest hit.
1: <laughs> for me, it's got to be SOFT, which I found a couple sources claiming that singer-guitarist Donna Matthews has said that the title SOFT is short for Same Old Fucking Things. I haven't actually found the original quote where she says that, so that seems plausible to me but you, a grain of salt could not be independently verified anyway mm. i love everything about this songs song. of
0: songs of freshmen songs, songs of, of
1: freshmen t- totally what's the last song. word um, yeah, <laughs> songs, songs of songs Frishman's of fun team songs of freshmen's team songs of fun times you could also say i that's how i how i feel is that i'm hearing songs of fun times i'm hearing that <laughs> I Indeed. <laughs> you've got the like squealy like harmonics and the you know intro licks there's the just full force impact of the instrumental kicking in after the intro there's the bass on this song there's the snare sound every single element of this track is like perfectly calibrated to scratch my brain you know Hayden how much I love pop punk you know how much I love anything fast and loud but honestly, nothing in the world of music impresses me as much as like a really good mid-tempo rock song like this. Being able to command this much swagger and this much raw rock and roll charisma at this perfect low simmer, like you're not even trying that hard. It's the best shit. It's the coolest. If you want to talk about cool Britannia, as some people did in the 90s, this is maybe the closest anyone got to making it happen or making it, you know, stick and, and into something timeless and enduring. Also, Justine Frischman played a Telecaster in all the music videos and live appearances from this time, and which we can all agree is the coolest guitar.
0: Controversial take, but I'll give it to you. Whatever guitar she plays automatically becomes the coolest guitar.
1: Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play Track 30, SOFT by Elastica. So as we've alluded to, there are way too many London bands to cover in uh, one episode of this show. So it's time for honorable mentions. Who would I be if I didn't take a moment here to gush about how much I love Florence and the Machine from London? I saw them Mm -hmm. open in 2011 for U2 in Baltimore on the 360 tour, which was an amazing show. I've been a fan of them ever since. I also, I really love their most recent record, Dance Fever. So if there's anybody out there who hasn't checked in on Florence for a while, this is the sign you've been waiting for that you should do that. Uh chef. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that X-Ray Specs played the Roxy in 1977 with Wire and the Buzzcocks, and that show was actually recorded and released on an LP called The Roxy London WC2. I don't think it's on streaming, but you can find it on the internet and it's a real trip. I highly recommend looking that up. Also, since you reminded me with your Groundhog's Pig, Hayden, I have to give one more shout out to the record Deceit by This Heat, which is a, a candidate for if we take a second pass at this city, I would love to come back and uh, take take a crack at that one.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll add um, Another Sky to the list. They are a band that's a peer of Elsa Tully. Katrin Vincent from Another Sky, the vocalist, made an EP with her and Tully supported them on tour a few years back. Another sky, an all-round incredible, huge-sounding art rock group in my top five live shows I've seen. It's so good. Also, Yowl, Y O W L, and their recent debut album Milk Sick. Um, as a title, <laughs> which is a title. Also, the Slumberland Records alumni Veronica Falls, who are the perfect jangle pop band. That's it from us. Where, where, where are we heading next?
1: you said perfect jangle pop band maybe that's an, an uh, appropriate segue because our next city is athens georgia
0: oh i i can't think of any jangle pop bands from there who would you mean yeah with? i know it's real it? obscure oh, right yeah.
1: hmm. we're gonna have to real gonna have to really reach to think of something to talk about in athens for more from the hosts of cities to love check out the episode description where you can find links to the cities to love playlist as well as some of our other music writing work thanks to ultimate overshare for the use of gotta juice which is our intro and outro music and most of all thanks to you for listening this has been cities to love